Winston Churchill once said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. So it is in our day. We live in a time as we walk through this life that we are told where truth is ours to define. We may make it whatever we wish. One man may have his truth, you may have your truth, someone else may have their truth. It's in those uncomfortable byways where truth is encountered that it becomes an inconvenience. We might call it a stubbed toe. Because most, in fact, do pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. But for the Christian, something happened. When you stumbled over the reality of your sin and you understood the person and the work of Jesus Christ, when you reckoned with that distance that stood between you and God, a great shepherd came and met you along that road in your stumble. And life has not been the same. Not for your relationship with God and not for your relationship to truth. And when we speak of truth this morning, this is a message about truth, we're speaking, as David Wells writes, of the truth. Scripture. We're speaking of the self-disclosure of God. We're speaking about how it corresponds to what happened in the world around us. A truth reflects what is truly in the human heart, and truth reflects what is reality. It's the measure of it. It is, in its absence, an occasion for a spiritual slump. Without it, one can wander off the road. In our first two messages in Malachi, we had one on God's love and then one on stilted worship. We're going to learn today that that a lean intake of truth can very much be the reason for a spiritual slump. In other words, if we find ourselves in a spiritual rut, it might be an absence of truth, a void or a diet, a lack of intake of God's word. What I'm going to do this morning is revisit this role of truth in our lives. I think we're, we're a Bible church, right? We're a manual Bible church. We can all unite on this. We can all rally around it. Truth is good. We love truth. But this morning, we want to go a little bit further and remind ourselves what truth is and why it's significant for us. We want to be sure as we leave here today that my truth is God's truth. Well, if you're not there yet, open up your Bibles with me to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, we're working our way through the prophet's message to Israel And we're learning from the example of Old Testament Israel. Israel had a breakdown in their worship with God because they had a breakdown with truth. Now, what I want to do this morning is give you the the three main movements of this passage. It's verses 1 through 9. They're somewhat unrefined, but along the way, woven within them, I want to give you very practical points of application. I want to give you points about truth as we work our way along. These are what to listen for. This morning, I'm going to give you six contrasts about truth so that you and I can live a ditch-free Christian life, the kind of life that is not stuck in a spiritual slump. 
I want to begin with the first three verses of Malachi 2. These are going to function as something of a bridge between what happened in chapter 1 and then the problem in chapter 2. In chapter 1, there was this half-hearted worship taking place among God's people. Well, there's a source for that. There's a reason for that, and that is an absence of truth or a deviation away from it. This is then chapter 2. In the first three verses, God will curse the priests if they do not obey the truth. Listen to what he says in verse 1. And now this commandment is for you, O priests, if you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings, and indeed I have cursed them already, because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. Well, verse 1 of this chapter is a continuation of chapter 1. We learned last week that God hates, he loathes half-hearted worship. God wants our best. He wants our best, not our leftovers. And we discussed how this applies in many different ways and how we gather for worship with the priority of worship, with our attentiveness in worship, with our heart in worship. Israel is taking all kinds of funky animals in for sacrifice. The blind, the lame, the sick, the stolen. These are what she is offering God. And God spoke to that in verse 10, this is chapter 1. Oh, that there were among you one who would shut the gates so that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, nor will I accept an offering from you. God points to the priests. They were permitting this half-hearted worship. And today's continuation is going to reveal the role that truth played in this. I should say the absence of truth, how a lack of truth led to this. If, verse 2, if they do not honor God, they will be cursed. Now notice in this verse, God promises the curse, not a curse. Some of your translations read a curse, but there is a definite article and that's significant. It is the curse. This singles out a particular curse, a very specific curse. Way back when, when God told Israel how to enjoy a relationship with him, he did it through a man named Moses. He called it the law, the Mosaic covenant, a covenant delivered through the man Moses. This covenant promised blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. We need to remember those two book names and those two chapters. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. I'll come back to this from time to time in our messages in this pulpit. Now these two chapters are going to explain everything that happens throughout the rest of the Old Testament to Israel. Her conflicts, her kings, her crops, her cash, her critters, all the problems that she had are a result of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. When she obeyed, they were blessed. 
When she disobeyed, they were cursed. That's the Mosaic Covenant. Now the thing here is that the priests, if they do not fix the ship, if they do not right the ship, this direction they're going, they're going to be in covenant disobedience, meaning curses. I believe that the curse spoken of in this passage is a disobedience to this Mosaic Covenant. God says, I will curse your blessings. And notice, this is going to be the first of three responses to unrepentant dishonor. If Israel continues along this path, dishonoring God's name, this is what will happen. He says, I will curse, I will rebuke, I will spread. In those first three verses, you can follow the I wills to see the consequence. Again, looking to the covenant blessings and curses, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, that's going to give us an idea of the curses they would experience. Secondly, verse 3, God will rebuke their offspring. Now, this isn't just a verbal reprimand. This isn't the boss telling the employees to quit wasting office paper. When God rebukes, In the Old Testament, he is blotting out names. He is drying up the sea. It is that magnitude of a reprimand. God promises to bring this rebuke on, quote, the offspring of the priests. Now, that word's going to apply to one of two things. It applies either to crops, offspring, seed, or children, offspring as in children. Now, if you look at your Bibles on this verse, you're going to notice that every single translation, your translators have made a decision on this. Most of your translations favor children. So the word's going to read descendants or offspring. Those will be the curse. The King James family, they went with crops. They went with seed. Now, there's a reason for both of these options. In Deuteronomy 28 You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little. That indicates that there is indeed going to be a curse among the crops. They're going to have famine and lack of food. But in the curses of the covenant, children are also impacted. Exodus 34. God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now, that's a concerning passage, but what this means here is not that God seeks to punish innocent children. That's not what this is saying here. He's not trying to punish children for their parents' sins, but it does mean that God would punish any, any generation in Israel who breaks covenant with God. In other words, no one can say, well, my parents were a bad example, so my sin is their fault. That's what that passage is driving at. Now, that's a bit of a sidebar, but the promise here is to curse offspring. And it's even doubled up in Deuteronomy 28. God said, cursed be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground. So, is it crops? Is it children? The answer is yes. Now, finally, this third rebuke, this third curse, God promises to spread refuse on their faces. It was the late 1800s when the phrases came along of save face and lose face. Perhaps you've heard that. 
This is a way of expressing one's dignity or, or lacking dignity. To save face is to retain dignity. And in this passage, Malachi 1, the Lord suffered a severe indignity at the hands of his people. Remember, they worshiped God according to their own precepts and not God's prescription. And as a result, they would suffer indignity. Verse 3 illustrates this. Now, some of your Bibles are going to read dung or something other than refuse. A few of them read animal waste. That's closer. So to offer a sacrifice in this time, an Israelite would bring a live animal to the priest to the temple for sacrifice. Now remember last week, this animal, it had to be perfect. It had to be perfect without any blemish, without any mark. And the priest would then take the animal and slaughter it. He would offer the blood and he would offer the fat on the altar. There were certain select portions of that animal he would offer. Now, what do you do with everything else? Well, that needs to get hauled away. Before the temple, when Israel sojourned in the wilderness, God told them what to do. Listen to this in Leviticus 4. The hide of the bull and its flesh, with its head and its leg and its entrails and its refuse, that is, all the rest of the bull, bring it out to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are poured out, and burn it with fire. So what God says in this passage is that he's going to take this pile of the leftovers before it's burned, and he's going to smear it on the faces of the priests. And by the way, this is a hefty pile because the piles got bigger at feast time. And not only does this produce the effect of indignity, which the priests have brought upon themselves by approving these sacrifices, it has a double effect by making them unclean, ceremonially unclean, where they themselves could not offer sacrifice, to which God would say, by the way, amen. Now, our six points are coming this morning, but what I want to see here is how these verses set up a case for truth. Why they need truth, why we need truth. You can see, in fact, you can practically smell how God feels about his name dishonored. The people took it upon themselves to determine how they would worship God and live out their faith before God. We may ask, as they should have, How in the world are we supposed to know what God wants then? Truth. We go to truth to learn God's will. God's going to tell us. We already see in Malachi that reinventing worship, God does not accept that. In the Old Testament, the priests were told when and where and how and why. In the New Testament, the Christian is told when and where and how and why. I mean, the priests, of course, that could apply to church leaders, to elders, for sure. But the priest could also be you, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And since truth is unchanging, God now does some Bible study with his audience. It's really our second main movement this morning. This is verses 4 through 6. Here, God reviews the blessings of obeying truth. God reviews the blessings of of obeying truth. And and here we're going to start to pick up some of these practical points of application. In verse 4, God declares, then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. 
My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reverence, so that he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was, was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. And what God does here is he reminds the priests of their origins. This is where you came from. All of this is grounded in that word covenant. A covenant is an agreement. A covenant is even a promise. Two parties are going to commit to certain actions to live together in a relationship. In this case, the tribe of Levi, one of the tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi is going to commit to be priests before God. In turn, God commits to bless them and their ministries as they perform them faithfully. This is interesting because you and I might be familiar with the big covenants of the Bible, right? The covenant with Abraham and, and Moses and David. You and I are underneath a new covenant. But the covenant with Levi is seemingly less obvious in the Bible than these other ones. So here's your four-minute flyover of Levi's covenant. Are you ready? All right. Levi was a son of Jacob. He first appears in Genesis 29, but you really get to know him in Genesis 34. Following a brutal attack on his sister Leah, Levi and his brothers decide to take revenge. Now they're going to convince the whole hometown of the attacker to go ahead and get circumcised. And when you get circumcised, it takes a few days to recover. So while they're recovering, the two of these men come in and kill every male in town. Now, by the way, Genesis has very little good to say about this man named Levi, but then again, we know that God chooses in spite of us and not because of us. Now, the next appearance of Levi is also significant, and this takes place after the Exodus. Michael, the Exodus is 500 years later. Was he cryogenically frozen? No, he wasn't. Good question, though. Levi became a tribe. His ancestors multiplied tens of thousands of people. In fact, in Malachi here, that's how Malachi refers to him. He's speaking of my covenant with Levi, with the tribe of Levi, not the person Levi. So why did God choose this tribe as priests? Why them and not someone else? Because of their zeal for the Lord. Because of their zeal for the Lord. At Mount Sinai, when a seething Moses comes down off the mountain... He sees the celebration of profane idolatry. And with the cry he yells, he yells out, whoever is with me, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Who comes? All the sons of Levi. This tribe of Levites come out to Moses. And he tells them to go get their swords. Go back and forth, he tells them, from gate to gate in the camp. This is what he's doing. He's saying, I want you to very methodically, I want you to very carefully look at every man, sword in hand, and kill every man his brother, every man his friend, and every man his neighbor. Kill all idol worshipers. It's worth mentioning here that Aaron is Moses' brother. So far, he's kind of been the priest without having this stamp of the tribe of Levi as priest. Ironically, he's the one that led them into sin. He didn't check them on it. That's a reminder that in Malachi's day, these problems were not new. They happened right from the very beginning. Just before Moses issued this call for the swordsmen, Aaron got all mealy-mouthed about his role in this thing. 
Oh, they gave me their gold. I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Right, Aaron. And I sneezed and here came these Ten Commandments. Aaron faltered, but the tribe soared. It's not because of Aaron. It's not because of the Levites, but it's because of God's grace that they rose to become priests among men. One more event that sets this tribe apart that you need to know, and I'm probably almost at the three-minute mark. The sword also takes a leading role here. It's in the wilderness. It's not long after Aaron passed. Israel becomes very warm to Baal worship. This is local religion. This is Canaanite religion, a religion of the land, very sexually immoral in nature. And Israelite begins to warm to this with Moabite women, women outside of the nation of Israel. And God sees this, and he tells Moses to line up the leaders of this and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Well, you won't believe what else happens in broad daylight. Moses is in tears. Israel is weeping. There is a plague unchecked working through the camp. And a man comes along escorting one of these foreign women. And he brings her along and introduces her to his family. And his brother and her walk into a tent in broad daylight. The Bible says in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation. And a man named Phinehas, a Levite, grandson of Aaron, sees this. And he grabs a spear and he follows the men and he comes out from the tent and only he emerges from the tent. And here's the covenant with Levi. Numbers chapter 25, verse 11. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him, a covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel." It is this zeal for the name of God that God wants in his priests. And it is this zeal for the name of God that was lacking among the priests in the days of Malachi. God here desires to to continue this covenant with his people, if they would have it, if they would obey. And in the same way, God desires this morning a covenant with you. It's called the new covenant. And the Bible says that if you will turn from your sin and you will come believing that Jesus Christ died for your sin and rose again, you will enter into a covenant with God. You're going to be forgiven of your sin. You're going to enjoy a right relationship with God. You're going to go to heaven to spend eternity with God when you pass. Now, this new covenant shares some marks of the old covenant. Two of them are are life and peace. You see that in verse 5 of our passage. The overall aim of this is life and peace. I mean, those two pursuits, are they not hardwired into the human being? To find satisfaction in the means to, to enjoy it and keep it? 
It's that, that Hebrew word shalom, meaning wholeness or fullness. That's the word peace there. And God wants this for his people. He wanted it for us under the new covenant, and he wanted it for his people under the old covenant. That brings us really to our first point about truth this morning. The truth aims to free you, not burden you. Truth aims to free you, not burden you. Now, the Bible takes the position that every person is a slave. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Now, that might be surprising, but if you think about it, it bears itself out. You can really test anything against this. You can go back a few decades to the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution promised freedom through sexual expression, but really, it's enslavement to lust and enslavement to passions. In our day, the, the climate justice movement, it promises freedom through activism. But it's really just enslavement to, to, to an ideology or ideology, and it's enslavement quite possibly to fear. You can test it with atheism or agnosticism. They're going to promise freedom. You live for yourself, but that's enslavement on a different level. That's an enslavement to what you feel is right. Follow your heart is not freedom. But Jesus promises a different freedom. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Jesus equates freedom with truth. You take in the word of God, you read it, and you do it, you will find freedom. Freedom from sin and freedom from judgment and freedom from death. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 5, God speaks about an effect of this covenant. And not only does it produce life and peace, but it also produces reverence. Now, we explored this last week, the word reverence meaning uh, a respectful awe for God or a, a fear of God. And we learned that broken worship is irreverent worship. And because the priests weren't functioning as their covenant stipulated, they failed to revere the name of God. Well, this is why truth is going to be so important in our position before God. It's our second point about truth this morning. Truth generates reverence, not flippancy. <clears throat> truth generates reverence and not flippancy. And we mentioned earlier that the, the, the part of the problem for the priests was that they weren't taking in enough truth or following truth. And that's how they got sideways with their sacrificial system. Their sickly sacrifices were somewhat of a picture of their intake of the Bible. They didn't revere God's name because they forgot who God was. They didn't know God. I'm sure they knew there was a God. I'm sure they knew about God, but they didn't know him. And as a result, they didn't revere him. See, truth awakens reverence for God. And if you are in your Bible, you're going to grow in your reverence for God. Do not the first three verses of this chapter strike the fear of God into our hearts? God curses and God rebukes and God spreads refuse. And God is to be feared. There's a wind blowing through the contemporary church. It's a dumbing down of God. 
It's bringing him down to our level. It's diluting his word to make it palpable. The effect then is this different God, a God who's a lot like us. Listen, I don't need a God like me and you don't need a God like you. We need a God who's high and exalted, a God who's worthy to be feared, a God whose truth captivates our heart. That's the kind of God we need, a God of the Bible. If you're looking at verses 6 and 7 then, we're going to hit the heart of this message on truth. A true instruction was found in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. This is the Levites working in accordance with truth. So far in Malachi, we've seen the priests offering sacrifices, no doubt a leading duty, an important role. We might imagine them doing other duties, having other jobs as priests. But from the outset, from the start, they were to be teachers. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 8, the Lord told Aaron to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. These guys were to be teachers. In fact, as Moses is preparing to pass, he gives this blessing, and he leads with teaching. He's hanging teaching on the front end of this blessing. Levi shall teach the Lord's ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. The priest had to speak instruction and had to be true instruction. It couldn't be false. It couldn't be wrong. So this is our third point on truth today. Truth is true, not false. I know that's mind-blowing, isn't it? Truth is true, not false. Now follow me here for a minute. In our day, there's an effort underway to redefine truth. It's been quite popular to redefine words. There are certain online dictionaries that have done this over the past few years. Words like marriage, gender, female, sexual preference, vaccine. I'm not even going to get started on the pronouns. There's going to be those who point to these words or point to other things and say, this is truth. Look over here. This is truth. We are a... um, a leading newspaper, or we are a leading news network. We have scholars and experts and doctors. They say this is truth. Whatever the claim is, whatever the agenda, we need to know that truth is true and that the Bible is true. And that means for you and I that we're always going to have a measuring rod. Anytime a claim is made about what is true or what is false, we can go to the Bible and we can compare it to the Bible. David writes in Psalm 119, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. And we need to know then as well that God's word is never going to change. And it's never going to lie. And it's never going to steer us wrong. God's word is true and never false. Now I want to pick up our fourth point again as we're working on these points about truth. And it comes again from verse 6. In this verse, God is reflecting. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many back from iniquity. Now, those who are guided by truth do that. This was what the priest should have been doing back then. It's what the holy priesthood, what we should be doing today. And we do this because our next point, truth promotes purity and not sin. Truth promotes purity and not sin. 
I'd say it this way, truth functions like fencing. It gives you and I guardrails to know about God's moral law, what is outside of God's moral law and what's inside God's moral law. And if we stay within the guardrails given by truth, we are less likely to encounter predators and others who seek to harm us as we would venture out. It's gonna give us a barrier. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That can be translated as make them holy in the truth or set them apart in the truth. Truth breeds holiness. So if someone makes a truth claim, but it leads to sin, then that's not God's truth. If it leads us outside the fence, if it opens the gates to sin, it's not healthy for us. It's not pure. Truth promotes purity and not sin. Verses 7 to 9 are now our final section of this passage. And again, in a big banner, third point, God instructs the priest to be messengers of truth. And here God instructs the priest to be messengers of truth, verse 7. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way, you have caused many to stumble by the instruction, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people. Just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. The priest is to be salt and light. The priest is to be an example. The priest is to be impartial. You can hear in verse 7 how the priesthood was the place to learn truth. Verse 7, for the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge. They function as a preservative They're passing down guardianship. They're passing down knowledge from one generation on to the next. They're not permitted to allow distortion or falsehood to creep in. Men are to seek instruction from their mouth. They're functioning as dispensaries. They're filled up with truth so much that they have truth to give. They have it. They're going to give it. You know what this sounds like? It sounds a lot like Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. You were the light of the world. You and I are salt and light. We're preserving truth and we're spreading truth. That leads us to our fifth contrast on truth today. Truth animates, it does not deaden. Truth animates, it does not deaden. I was reading the other day of this place in Minnesota. It's, it's called Orfield Laboratories. And within this laboratory, there, there's a place called an Anoic chamber. Anoic means without echoes. And this is known as the quietest place on earth. A Smithsonian magazine did an article on it. It's so quiet that the background noise measures in negative decibels. Apparently the longest anyone has sat in this chamber is 45 minutes. The lab's founder says, quote, when it's quiet, ears will adapt. The quieter the room, the more things you hear. You'll hear your heart beating. Sometimes you can hear your lungs, hear your stomach gurgling loudly. In the anoic chamber, you become the sound. That doesn't sound fun. 
Well, this article goes on, not only do people hear their heartbeat, they have trouble orienting themselves and even standing up. How you orient yourself is through sounds you hear when you walk. In the Anoic chamber, you don't have any cues. If you're in there for half an hour, you have to be in a chair. I think that's an illustration of the condition of our souls without truth. We're just in darkness. We're listening to our own sounds. One encounter with truth, our encounter with Jesus, it rescues us from this fate. Our ears, they've adapted to a new sound. We now have the spirit of truth speaking to us. We don't fumble around in the dark. We've stepped out of this chamber of darkness. And hopefully, hopefully, this has produced some activity in your life. There is some movement in your life. There's life. Hopefully it gets into our veins, truth does. Hopefully it courses through our hearts. Hopefully it produces something in us. You see, in the day of Malachi, the priests were zombies. I hope that truth energizes us. I hope that it gets us excited about Jesus Christ and about our faith. Verse 8, you will notice, depicts the spiritual life as something of a journey that these priests in their ways have turned aside from the way and they're not walking as God willed. And notice it gets even worse. Those seeking to do that stumbled. We know Jesus will later go on to say that it's better if the priests would put a millstone around their necks and jump into the sea. Even worse yet, in verse 9, they're showing partiality in their instruction. It seems as though when they did give instruction, they did it poorly. This is not the aim of God's truth. Because in our last point today, truth strengthens us, it doesn't cripple us. Truth strengthens us, it doesn't cripple us. Now, to be clear, there are times where truth wounds Truth is going to cause us in the Lord to confess sin, to repent, to change. But this is all ultimately meant to strengthen us, not to knock us down. In fact, if someone is left unconfessing and unchanging, one wonders what encounter with truth they've ever had. So truth strengthens the Christian. And this morning we saw that it liberates burdens. It reveres God. It remains consistent. It promotes purity. It even energizes the blood. So when we stall spiritually, we should pause and revisit truth. Maybe we need to uptake, up our intake of truth. Well, to conclude then, just a few final points in light of this message When it comes to truth, when this interaction with truth occurs in our lives, we need to to think about just what truth we're interacting with. We need to have a strong sense of discernment. Consider the teaching you're receiving. And I'm not just talking about here at the church. I'm talking about as you live out your daily life. You know, in our technology series in the equipping hour, we've, we've identified that we are constantly being discipled, that the world around us is discipling us, It is giving us messages. Technology disciples us. More than that, our friends disciple us. The world disciples us. What are we taking in? Are we aware? Are we conscious 
of the messages that we are being given? And are we being discerning with them? We need to ask if the agendas behind those messages align with Jesus Christ's agenda or with someone else's agenda. On one hand, we can't be ignorant of this, but on the other hand, we can't pretend like we're so strong that we're just absolutely immune to this. We need to be discerning. Secondly, this means then, when it comes to truth, we're going to need more than just a Sunday morning injection. If this 40 minutes is your only brush with truth this week, if we factor in you sleep eight hours at night, this 40-minute dose of truth consists of one half of 1% of your week. Do not let the Sunday sermon be the only truth you take in all week. You need truth from God's word through the week. There are thousands this morning, thousands of podcasts that are quality. There are thousands of books that are quality. There are thousands of chapters in your Bible that are quality. Our webpage, we've put dozens of resources on there for you. And if you need help setting up something on your computer at home, call me. I will come and help you do that. You need truth through the week not just on Sunday morning. And finally, as we take in truth, as we fill up on truth, we need to give truth. We can't keep this just for ourselves. Every one of us, on some level, in some way, we're called to be a teacher. And you may not see yourself that way this morning, but if you know the gospel, if you understand some basic truths about the Christian faith, you're a teacher. You communicate that to someone. You don't need to be a seminary graduate. You don't need to have a doctorate degree. You just need to love the Lord and love people. Give away truth. And here's the big one, especially for parents. Parents, you are the primary role. You serve the primary role of giving your kids truth. Especially dads. More than anything, you need to be giving your kids truth. Open up the Bible and just read to them verses in the New Testament. God will do the work. But make sure that you share truth and we don't keep this truth for ourselves. On the end here, we've learned that we are all a spiritual priesthood. And we've been given a gospel. And we understand the basics and we can give those things away. Churchill was right. Some stumble over truth. May you and I stand on it. And may we be stronger and love the Lord more for it. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for truth. Thank you that you've opened up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to it. I pray for us this morning, Lord, that we would be like sponges, that we would soak up your word, that we would love your word, and that would impact our lives. I pray for your people this morning. I pray for all of us, that you would implant within us new desires that drive us to your word, that we would hunger and thirst for truth. Speak to us, O Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.